0: Welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's good news for imperfect people. You should know by now, I'm Jeff Ebert, and this is Season 1, Episode 18 on the story of Jesus walking on water. It's found in the Gospel of John, Chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. We're also going to be looking at the parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 14, starting with verse 22, if you want to open your Bible to there as well. You know, today the news is filled with stories and images of Russian troops invading Ukraine, and all the pundits are speculating, second guessing, armchair quarterbacking, you know, what should or should not have been done to prevent the invasion from happening, or what should or should not be done now that the invasion is underway. And folks, it's just the latest reminder that our world is a mess, and all our attempts to control or predict the future are usually way off base. There are only two constants in our world that I can think of. Human sin, or as the old Calvinist would say, human depravity. That's one constant. And the other is God's grace expressed through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I can't do one thing about the situation in Ukraine, totally beyond my circle of influence except through the power of prayer. And I am praying. But the thing I can do and the thing we all can do as the church is to help people understand who Jesus really is and how to connect with him through a living and vibrant faith. He's the Prince of Peace. And he told us there will be wars and rumors of wars until he comes again. That's Matthew 24, verse 6. So if there's any hope at all for any kind of peace in this world, it has to begin with people being at peace with God through Christ. And so that's the mission of the Gospel Wabi Sabi. That's why I'm so excited about going through the Gospel of John, because John gives us these wonderful vignettes of Jesus' life his interaction with people, his disciples, these interactions that reveal his inner character, his purpose, and his power. Billy Graham's daughter, Anne Graham Lotz, wrote a pretty good book about the Gospel of John, called It Just Give Me Jesus, because that's exactly what John does. It's pure Jesus on every page. John 6 contains the back to back miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on water. And These two miracles are reported in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark as well. And that suggests that there is something significant going on here. Now, last week's podcast was on the most public public miracle of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000. Today's sign or miracle, it's just the opposite. It's only for the closest followers of Jesus. And for us today, as his disciples, we are kind of led in on the miracle through John's description of Jesus walking on water. But John does it in very few words. His version is so short, we really need to look at the parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, to get the full story. So before I do that, let me just again invite you to consider becoming a financial supporter of Gospel Wabi Sabi. Help cover the production costs. You can find information on how to do that in the episode descriptions. And for supporters, if you send me your email, I will be happy to send you weekly a copy of the podcast scripts so that you can renew them for your own uh, personal Bible study. John 6, starting with verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed three and three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were terrified. But Jesus said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Matthew 14, starting with verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said and cried out in fear but jesus immediately said to them take courage it is i don't be afraid lord if it's you peter replied tell me to come to you on the water come he said then peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward jesus but when he saw the wind he was afraid and beginning to sink he cried out lord save me immediately jesus reached out his hand and caught him you have little faith he said why did you doubt and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Ever try to tell a story with someone else? I mean, you end up jumping in with, in on top of each other with, you know, more details that you remember or the other person left out. Don't forget this. Remember this. Hearing from more than one person often gives you a composite picture. And so in this story, Matthew gives us some significant details that John did not include in his very brief account. To me, sometimes John is just the master of understatement. I mean, for a miracle like this, as few words as he gave, I mean, I would go on for pages and pages walking on water. Come on. I mean, that is so crazy. I'd want to include as much detail about how that happened as possible, but not John. He gives us very personal details sometimes, but not just information in abundance, except when it's some of the verbal discourses of Jesus, and then he's very thorough. So what are some some of the things that Matthew adds to give us the full flavor? Well, first, Matthew remembers that Jesus, quote-unquote, made the disciples get into the boat. Remember that John wrote his gospel like 30 to 40 years after the other gospels had already been written and distributed, And so he didn't feel like it was necessary for him to repeat many of the details that they had already given. John kind of expects his reader to supply many of the the details of these stories from the other Gospels. But Matthew writes that the disciples did not want to leave Jesus when he told them to go back to Capernaum. Well, John simply says they got in the boat and they started out. Matthew tells us that they did this very reluctantly. In fact, he says Jesus had to use a little persuasion with them. He told the disciples to get into the boat and go back to Capernaum and leave him alone on the shore. And they argued because they didn't want to do that. And I'll bet he narrowed his eyebrows, his voice maybe took on a bit of an edge, and he said more sharply, get in the boat. Made, it's a strong word in the Greek. It's an imperative, which means he compelled them. He ordered them to get into the boat. Imagine they're all down on the shore by the boat and Jesus says, okay, get in, I'll see you later. They push back saying, why, you know, where are you going? Aren't you getting in the boat with us? I mean, Matthew was a tax collector, not a fisherman like Peter and Andrew. Uh, Maybe that's why he records this detail. But, you know, if you're not getting in the boat, then neither am I. Ever have that conversation in your family? I mean, you can say the same words in a lot of different ways. All right, let's get in the car. Get in the car. Get in the car. Same with Jesus. Against their objections, he tells them, get in the boat, and shove off. You know, the Lord Jesus speaks with authority. And if you think following Jesus is an optional deal where you just get to kind of do what you like and forget the rest, well, you're really wrong. If you are a Christ follower, a Christian, you're walking under authority, his authority. And many times there's no room for debate. The options are either obey or disobey the Lord. The authority of Christ and the authority of God's word as it's revealed in Scripture, we're surrendered to that if we say that we're his disciples. You don't play around with God's word. His teachings are authoritative. It's a must. Authority is not appealing to us, usually. We don't like to have anyone else tell us what to do. We like to be in charge, kind of call our own shots. But that's why so many people, even those who claim to be Christians, tend to water down the Bible, maybe say, well, portions are not relevant to our culture today. People work pretty hard to convince others that God is saying something different today so we don't have to be in submission to the Word of God. Placing your life under the authority of Christ through His Word, properly understood, is not popular because we're arrogant to think that we, in our own original or individual opinions, that we know God's mind better than the writers of Scripture. That's very shaky ground. So no, in so many areas of life, behavior, simple morality, ethics, God's word and God's will for us is very clear. Get in the boat. I like you to do my own, I mean, I like to do my own thing, but Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. People who love him accept this authority and obey his word. You know, often you can see these uh, video clips of rock stars having these little prayer circles right before their concerts. And I always wonder, you know, who are they praying to? Who are they praying to when the words, the message, the lifestyle that they promote with their music is diametrically opposed to God's word? Who are they praying to? It's not to Jesus. It's not to the God of scripture. In a sense, people frequently create a God in their own image because they don't want to submit their lives, their lifestyle, their choices to the authority of God's word. If you're a Christ follower, a Christian, you're walking under his authority. Second, Matthew tells us the reason Jesus sent them on ahead was that he wanted to be alone. He says Jesus dismissed the crowd and went up onto a mountainside by himself to pray. Now dismissing 5,000 plus, we said last time, maybe even up to 10,000 people. I mean, that's hard to do. It's a lot easier for us. You know, after church service is over, the place empties out in about 50 seconds. You know, people just kind of beat feet right out the door. Well, this crowd wasn't really going anywhere. They were ready to make Jesus king, if you'll recall. They still had real needs. Some were sick. Some were needing help. They weren't ready to go. They weren't ready for Jesus to be done. They were pressing in on him. And this is something sort of heavy and revealing about Jesus because he didn't respond to the pressure of the crowd. Instead, he used his authority to get rid of all the people so that he could be alone with the Father. If that time with the Father was so important that he left the crowds, what does that say to us? You know, we're such great activists, uh, so busy day in and day out, always in problem-solving mode. If Jesus thought it was so important to use his authority to be alone with the Father, how much more important it should be for us to find time to be alone with God on a daily basis. This is so essential for a healthy, balanced, fulfilling Christian life. So much of our frustration, anxiety, confusion, stunted spiritual growth, it can all be traced back to this one simple thing. We never spend any time alone with God in prayer or meditating on God's word. If you've been a Christian a while, you've probably heard about having you know a quiet time, a devotional time each day, a little time, 10, 15 minutes, a half an hour, just to be alone with God. It doesn't have to be anything complicated, but this simple discipline is really the key to positive spiritual growth. Being alone with the Lord for a few minutes each day should be very much a part of every one of our lives as we walk with Christ. I'll be the first to admit, it's often difficult to pull off. We're always in active mode, think we don't have time. Uh, what we don't have is a proper sense of our own spiritual authority over our own lives. The multitudes are there, all those needs and distractions, the newspaper, the mail, the email, the email, Uh, homework, the kids, the commute, phone bills, TV, you know, the list of distractions is just endless. But to withdraw and to be alone, it's such an important ingredient that if it's left out of our lives, we're going to suffer for it. The testimony of great followers of Christ over the last 2,000 years is that time alone in prayer and Bible study is imperative. There just is no substitute. In the middle of this busy, stressful season Your only defense, your only hope for fulfilling faith is a disciplined commitment to private time with God. That's how we stay sane. That's how we find our center. That's how we find balance. Without it, we are easily knocked around by all the pressures that hit us every day. With it, we create kind of this little pool of calmness, a center of serenity in the eye of the hurricane. Friends, it's imperative that you have a regular season of quiet prayer with Jesus you cannot grow spiritually without it. You just cannot. And there are so many helps available in our day. So many simple devotional books, like like Jesus Calling by Sarah Young, or you could start reading The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. It has a forty day commitment uh, portion to it, especially during the season of Lent. That's a great thing to do. It starts next week. Right now, I'm using a daily devotional called The Blue Book by a guy named Jim Branch. It helps. Guide me to scripture passages each day so I can reflect on my life with Christ. Another good idea is like keep a journal, just a little log, not a lot of white paper to fill, just one thought for the day, one thought to record from scripture or to write out your own short prayer. If you're a family with small children, well, husbands and wives, they need to help each other with this, to talk about it, you know, who's going to watch the kids so there can be some times of quiet for each. If you're a single person or you have roommates, it takes effort to find that alone time, but it's so necessary. Like it says in Psalm 37, verse 7 be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in Mere Christianity, and I quote The real problem of the Christian life comes from where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoveling them back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. End quote. Jesus used his authority in order to be alone with the Father, and you need to do it too. So after his time of prayer, Jesus sees the predicament of the disciples, and let's think about their situation for a moment. They started across the sea to the other shore. The disciples were on the northeast, or on the eastern side of the northern part of the Sea of Galilee where the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 took place. So to go back to Capernaum was merely to row their boat parallel to the northern shore, just kind of follow it all the way back. And as they rowed across the northern tip of the lake, they would normally never have been very far from shore. You stay close. Uh, John indicates that they kind of expected for Jesus to meet them somewhere along the way before dark settled in, but he tells us that it had already grown dark and that Jesus had not yet come. So the disciples were facing a problem. It's now so dark they can't see the shore. And to make matters worse, he tells us a strong wind was blowing. Now in that section of the country, the wind almost invariably blows from the north out of the mountains of Lebanon and Mount Hermon, down the valley and across the lake towards the south. As the darkness settled in, the disciples were rowing to try and get across to Capernaum, but the wind was driving them farther and farther south, so they lost sight of the shore and all possibility of picking up Jesus. Yet faithful to his command, they were toiling, and they were rowing, they were trying to get across the lake. Matthew confirms this, saying that it was three o'clock in the morning when the disciples found themselves right in the middle of the lake, far south of their intended course. So the wind is building up, but they've got some experienced sailors and fishermen in the crew, so they're not in great danger. I mean, it's difficult, but it's not a life and death situation, at least not yet. So Jesus lets them alone for a while. He waits before making his move. And isn't that pretty much, you know, our experience with God? He waits before he makes his move. He lets us struggle for a while. I wish he didn't, but he lets us struggle And so we go through something tough, the winds against you. You're wondering, well, where are you, Lord? Can't you see the waves are getting bigger? It's hard to believe that the Lord's timing is always right. That's where we struggle, trusting his timing. Things were getting rough in that boat. If you've been in a little boat in big waves, it doesn't take much to feel like you are in way over your head. Plus, this was happening at night where they couldn't see much. And I can imagine some of the disciples who weren't fishermen are getting a little green around the gills. Poor Matthew, I mean, he's a landlubber, he's a tax collector. I'm sure he was terrified, probably hanging over the side, losing his lunch into the lake. Through the darkness and the spray, somebody sees something on the water. Does a double take. Elbows the guy next to him. Did you see that? Do you see what I see? Amazingly, some supposed theologians and scholars have tried to come up with you know, naturalistic explanations for the disciples seeing Jesus walking on the water. For example, you know, it just looked like Jesus was walking on the water. In reality, he was standing in shallow water. Yeah, that's it, shallow water. Or standing on the rocks that nobody else knew were there. Or he found a sandbar that suddenly appeared for him to walk on way out into the middle of the lake. A sandbar that none of the experienced sailors knew anything about. But he knew where it was and he tricked them. I actually, this is true, I actually had a college theology professor who explained this miracle by saying that Jesus had advanced paranormal psychic powers, like that magician trick, you know, where they supposedly bend spoons with their minds. And that's how Jesus could walk on water. He, was, he wasn't God. He was just advanced paranormal psychic ability. I mean, come on. Don't make up lame explanations like that. Just say it didn't happen. That would make more sense. That the disciples just made it up. But the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost. On top of everything else, now they're seeing ghosts. But this ghost speaks. And he says, take courage. Literally, cheer up. What do you mean, cheer up? And then he adds, well, it's me. It's I. He identifies himself, a statement of his presence. And sometimes all we have in the middle of the storm is his presence. Because solutions don't come. Pain persists. Whatever happens, he still promises his presence. He says, I'm here. They weren't totally understanding. It wasn't kind of like a resignation to fatalism. There's a tremendous sense of the presence of God, and that's sometimes all we have when we're in rough seas. But we can be sure he'll be there. Jesus immediately answers the disciples' fears with the words, It is I, don't be afraid. If you think about those words for a moment, you can see what amazing reassurance is to be found in them. What Jesus is saying is, you know, the thing that scares the living daylights out of you, the very thing that's opposing you, that's raging against you, the sea, the howling winds, I have those under my feet. I am walking on the thing that has you terrified. I am in control of these things that are, you're afraid of. So there's, there's no reason for you to be frightened. Matthew tells us that this was the time when Peter opens his big mouth He sees the Lord, calls out to him, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. I mean, that's so typical of the impulsiveness of Peter, so characteristic of his personality. Tell me to come. Jesus gave him an invitation, the same invitation he really gives to all, you know, to come to me. Come on, come to me. The other disciples must have thought Peter was nuts, stepping out over the boat. First, his toe hits, you know, it's wet but for some reason solid, and then, wow, the next step and and the next, and Peter begins to walk through the power of the storm, walk right through with the power of faith in Jesus, but his stroll didn't last long. He took his eyes off of Jesus, looked at the waves around him, thinking, what am I doing? And he started to sink like a stone. It's kind of like falling through thin ice. Splash, he's sinking fast. It doesn't take long to sink when we take our eyes off of Christ. So often we let our problems become bigger than our God. Jesus saw, or Peter saw the wind and waves, momentarily took his eyes off the power of Christ. And so Peter fires up that beautiful little prayer, Help! I mean, I pray that a lot. It's not too fancy. Sometimes in churches, you know, you hear people trying to pay, pray with such flowery language. We think, you know, God is going to be impressed with eloquence. You know, oh, thou immutable, immortal, impenetrable sustainer of the cosmos. I mean, that sounds like really spiritual stuff, but you don't need to pray that way. Just shoot up a Peter prayer. Lord, save me. And Jesus's response is the same response he gives to us. Notice Jesus did not say, that was a lame prayer, Peter. Until you really learn how to pray, I can't help you. Keep treading water. No, he reaches down, picks him up. The soggy fisherman soaked to the skin, his garments heavy with water. Jesus just plucked him right up. Peter, where's your faith? Their fear was immediately relieved when they realized it was indeed Jesus who was walking on the water. And he was in control of all these natural events. So they're willingly now to receive him into the boat. And immediately there was a further demonstration of the power of Jesus because the text tells us they were instantly on the other side of the lake to the place that they were going. The three or four remaining miles of the journey were suddenly accomplished and they found themselves at the dock in Capernaum. So what's the connection between the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the miracle of Jesus walking on water? Well, it is an amazing demonstration of the power of Jesus over the natural world, and that's just like with the multiplication of the bread and the fish. But there could be a deeper reason suggested in an old commentary by a guy named Dr. Godot, a professor of theology in Neuchâtel, Switzerland, writing in his commentary on the Gospel of John. This was like way back in the 1870s. And he says that because of the dialogue that comes next in chapter 6 about Jesus being the bread of life, That maybe Jesus is, or that John is trying to tie together the two miracles to explain the meaning of the Lord's Supper. In the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, Dr. Gadot says Jesus foreshadows the sacrifice which he will make with his body, broken on the cross for the spiritual food of the world. Then in that terrible night of the storm out on the water, that prefigures what the disciples will experience following his crucifixion, a time of darkness and separation and fear. And finally, in his unexpected and triumphant return across the waves, Jesus prefigured his glorious resurrection and even his triumphant ascension. Now, I'm not 100% convinced that that's the reason John puts these miracles together. It's possible. It's worth thinking about. And we can explore Jesus' discourse on the bread of life in the next episode and we'll finish off chapter six. But this miracle of walking on the water, it's really a beautiful combination in it, the must which highlights the authority of Jesus. And then in the very next moment when faith is weak, that must is coupled with his grace and the power of his presence. Sometimes God does feel very far away. We don't always have a sense that he's near, but he gives us this promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. His timing is always right, His solution is sure. No matter how rough the seas, he'll come through with power, energy, and love. Jesus said, cheer up, take courage, it's me. That's a good thought to carry with you throughout the week ahead. Whatever storm comes your way, whatever storms you're facing, Jesus is coming to your boat and you don't have to be afraid. So have a great week and take care.